0: He is risen. Amen, amen. What a great day it is for us to be here at church to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I've had several conversations with different pastors throughout the week, and uh, it's funny listening to pastors because a lot of times they're like, oh, Easter, it's so busy. It's such a crazy time. And I don't know, I must just be doing it wrong because every Sunday feels kind of panicky to me. And, um, I was asked this morning, you know, which Sunday is the Super Bowl Sunday, and can you answer all of them? And I truly mean that. I don't mean to be flippant or funny, but is every Sunday not Resurrection Sunday? I mean, that's why we do church on Sunday and not on Saturday, the Sabbath. We moved it because after Jesus was risen from the grave, what other day are you going to do it? Then the day when Christ came back from the grave, overcoming the power of death, for all of eternity, for all who would believe. That's a reason to get up early on Sunday morning and celebrate it, is it not? So we're excited to do that today. But but something I want us to look at as, as we get into the service this morning is, is how the resurrection was first received. You know, it's easy for us now to look at the reality of the resurrection and be excited about it because we understand the, the rest of the story, if you will, right? We know We know the the overarching truth that is going to come about. We we know where the end of the story is. And and so we can follow it in our minds and and not be uh, quite as alarmed. I mean, we're excited about the resurrection. might be interesting for you to note that for the early disciples and for those that first got to the tomb, it wasn't such an exciting thing. Well, it was, just not for a good reason. We're going to start by reading the text here in John 20. So join me, will you, as we read here, John 20, starting in verse 1. It says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. As we dig into this passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. God, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the glory and the hope of resurrection unto eternal life. Lord, I pray this morning as we look at the truth of your word that you would enlighten our eyes, that we might see you, that we might understand that you are standing here with us, calling to us by name, asking us to believe and to follow you. Lord, speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's an interesting, it's an interesting turn, isn't it? We don't normally think of, if you read the Gospels, you see in all of them that that they're kind of freaked out when they get to the tomb and Jesus is gone. And we we might struggle with that again because of the way that we perceive the story. But I can tell you from first-hand experience that losing a body is not a good thing. When I was in West Virginia early in my career, it wasn't uncommon for long-standing members of the church, members that had been there for 50, 60 years, for their families to request that the body be left in the church overnight. Because a church isn't creepy enough in the dark without a dead body in it. And so on several occasions, they asked if they could leave the urn with the ashes or the, the, the coffin with the body in, in the sanctuary, and for whatever reason, we would acquiesce and allow them to do that. I don't think that's even legal now. It might not have been there, but it happened then. So I remember this gentleman died, a longtime member of the church, and his son was the current chair of the trustee board. And so I watched as, as this chair of the trustee board walked over to where the pastor at the time and the funeral director was standing, and he went over and had a conversation with them, and I was like, I have got to know what's going on over there. So I walked my way over there, and I listened, and I got there just in time to hear them say, so it's agreed, we will lock the coffin, we'll shut it and lock the coffin, and then we'll lock the doors, but we'll leave the body here overnight. And my initial thought was, absolutely not. No way. No way. Like, I struggle enough thinking that there are demons around every corner. I swear to you, you come in here at night, the the building has life of its own in the church at night. And, And you may think it's the safest space, but it's horrifying sometimes to walk around in here at night. Same thing's true at every church I've ever been at. So now I've got a body to contend with. So we locked the doors. They had center aisles, and so they locked the center doors, glass in the back, just like our sanctuary, and left the body in the front. Later that night, I was on my way home from something, and I don't know what it was that prompted me. It could have just been curiosity, or I may have had something to do that night in the church. It might have just been a little bit of both. But I stopped at the church sometime around 11.30 that night and made my way into my office. And then when I was done, just being a good youth pastor, I decided I would check on Sir Bob in the sanctuary. So I make my way up the stairs, and I walk across the back... And as soon as I come around the corner, I notice that something is horribly wrong because someone has opened the sanctuary doors and they've propped them open using hymnals in a Baptist church. You know what that means? It wasn't a Baptist This is bad, right? Both sides, four hymnals, cranked under there to hold the door open. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, what has happened? And I, I turned the corner and I looked through the glass, and there at the front is one lone stage light down in the middle. And there, where the casket has, had been, is nothing. I was horrified. Like there was no part of me that saw the empty, the, the empty sanctuary and thought, woo, we got him back. Mr. Bob was a good giver. I'm glad that we didn't lose him. No part of me was excited that the body was gone. Every part of me was horrified. Someone stole a body. Why would you steal a body? And so I did what any sane human being would do. I called the police. (laughs) And the police came and visited me in the church sanctuary. Then I called the pastor. Turns out I had the order reversed. Who would have known? I call the pastor with the police officer standing there and I say, hey, pastor, I just wanted you to know Mr. Bob's body is gone, but it's okay. I've called the police. They're on the case. He's like, no, you didn't. I said, yes, I did. He said, well, let me make a call and I'll call you back. So he calls the funeral director, immediately calls me back and said, tell the police that they can go home. There was a miscommunication with the funeral director and his staff. The staff came back and got the body. It's okay. Mr. Bob is at the funeral parlor. That would have been good news, right? Like, if I had it before, we'd have avoided all kinds of panic. But I can tell you that finding a body missing is not immediately good news. Right? I left him there. I knew he was there. He's not going to get up and walk by himself. The only logical conclusion with hymnal, hymnals pressed underneath the door and the body gone and the light in the middle is that someone stole the body. You know what? I think it's similar here. We look at this, we look at this text and I think it's important for us to understand that the empty tomb was initially seen as a final defeat rather than the ultimate victory. The empty tomb was initially seen as a final defeat, defeat, not the ultimate victory. Everything we see here at the beginning of the story is panic. Everything that we see here at the beginning of the story is sadness. Everything we see at the beginning of this story is fear and doubt. See, the empty tomb did not initially serve as proof of the resurrection. Mary Magdalene and company, because it wasn't just Mary that that went to the tomb that morning. She just happened to be the first one to get there. Those women that went to that tomb that morning fully expected to find a beaten and battered dead Jesus. That was the full expectation. They they weren't coming to throw confetti and celebrate his resurrection. They were coming. They had made an investment. If we look in Mark and Luke, we see that the ladies had bought And brought precious perfumes and spices to prepare Jesus' three days dead body. Their concern is, who's going to move the rock so we can get in? There is no part of them that expected Jesus to be alive. And Mary's response to the tomb is in keeping with that, isn't it? It is not immediate, overwhelming joy and excitement. She is panicked. And she comes to the only logical conclusion. Someone has stolen the body of the Lord. She runs to Peter and John straight away, the Bible says. And the news she delivers is not good. She needs help. The the empty tomb was both undesirable and unbelievable. Unbelievable. Peter and John race off to see for themselves. They, they had to see to believe what was going on. Now, I, just a quick tangential note, because John adds it in himself. Y'all notice how John speaks about himself in self-deferential terms at some points. He's like, the other disciple. But then at a lot of other times, he's like, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Like, John, you're not being humble. Like, that's the worst humble brag I've ever seen. Just say your name. No, the disciple that Jesus loved. And then John, to add, to add on to the misery of the whole situation, was like, hey, we both tore off for the tomb. And Peter went first, but I beat him. <laughs> John's got to record for all of posterity that he was the superior athlete. Of course, he does it humbly, though. The other disciple was faster. Right? Kudos to you, John. I want to have that conversation one day in heaven. Heaven. It just seems kind of funny that in the midst of a terrorful, like a terror-filled moment, like, why that note, right? But whatever, I digress. Upon reaching the tomb, though, John, the other disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, doesn't, doesn't run immediately into the tomb. Actually, the wording, the wording in the Greek, and this is actually in an academic uh, book on the Bible, right? A documentary, kind of commentary, right? And it says that that John looked down into the tomb. The Greek wording, the way they translate it, is that he peeped down into the tomb. That's the word. That's how they say it in in the commentary, that John peeped into the tomb, right? He just kind of looking, doesn't really want to go in. It's dark in there. There was a body in there. I'm not feeling running there headlong. So he just kind of peeps in there. Peter, being Peter, charges in like a bull. Peter's my guy, right? Straight in, he got to check this out. And what do they find? They find the strips of cloth in which Jesus had been wrapped laying there. And the indication in the text is that, that where Jesus' had body had been, those strips are still in place as they would have been had they been wrapped around Jesus' body. So that the body, you could tell that a body was there, but the body had just disappeared or dissolved or vanished, whatever the case may be. You could see that a body belonged in that sleeping bag looking thing, but it was not there. And then you see a second part, which is actually an indicator that, that, that was missed by the disciples. That the, the cloth that was wrapped around Jesus' face was set apart by itself at the head. And actually, if you look at some of the other Gospels, they say it even more specifically. They say that it was wrapped up. Now, brief side note and spoiler What thief is gonna steal a body, then take the time to wrap the cloths on his way out. Hey man, gotta leave it better than I found it. My mama taught me right. You know, make your bed before you go. Oh, absolutely not. John and John and Peter, I wonder if that's not an editorial note for John saying, hey, we should have known. We should have known. Now, note what it says. They come in and they see the empty tomb. And the passage tells us in in, in verse 8, it says, he saw and he believed. He saw and he believed. This is talking about the apostle John, that John finally enters the tomb and he looks and he believes. Now, some scholars would lead us to believe or would like for us to believe that, that John now is coming to faith. That John sees the empty tomb and he sees the signs. And John's like, yep, Jesus rose from the grave. i got to argue that that can't be correct. Why do I say that? Because look what it says in verse 9. It says, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. You know what they believed at this point in time here early in the story? They believed that the body had been stolen. What they believe is what what Mary had claimed at the beginning. I went to the tomb and the body was gone. Sure enough, here I am in the tomb, no body. That's what they believe. You see, everything we see here at the front end of the story indicates that, that they don't understand what's going on. It indicates that they are missing the point. And that's what's crazy about this to me is that they see all of these amazing signs. They've heard Jesus speak for three years, talking regularly about how, quote, the Son of Man must be crucified, buried for three days, but he will raise from the grave. And and they still don't get it. That's a warning for us, I think. It is possible for us to see all the signs and still come to the wrong conclusions about Jesus. Jesus. It is possible for us to see all the signs and still come to the wrong conclusions about Jesus. Look at their response, right? They see the empty tomb. Mary stays there, weeping in sadness. John and Peter go back to the place where they'd been staying and lock themselves behind the the closed doors in fear for their lives. Thomas, and and we, Thomas wears the weight of this, but, but we could certainly assume that all of the disciples were dealing with heavy doses of doubt. The signs of the empty tomb led them to believe that all was lost. Death feels incredibly final, doesn't it? Like even now, if you come to a funeral, it feels very final, doesn't it? To be in that room, I'll, I'll tell you, as a pastor, I still haven't gotten used to it. I do dozens of funerals. I've done dozens of funerals in my life in a variety of situations. And sometimes with, with it being someone that loses their life entirely too young, sometimes it being someone who has lived a long and full life and, and passes away quietly in their sleep. And I'll tell you that at every funeral, even if I don't know the person, there comes a point where the heaviness of the moment sets in. And I struggle to keep it together. There's a darkness in that moment. No matter how hard I try to preach the gospel and and, and draw light to the dark situation, there's this heaviness, this weight, this finality to death that is hard for us as humans to see through and to see past. In Psalm 44, verses 22 through 23, it says, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, Lord. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Borrowing from the Psalms again, all of us will at some point in time walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We all have moments where it appears all of the signs around us point to our ultimate defeat. All the signs around us point to difficulty and darkness. All the signs around us make us or bring us to the point and the conclusion that that things are hopeless. All hope is gone. Often the emptiness in our lives, though, serves as a space where God can enter and prove himself faithful. But, But will we see it? Are we willing to, to enter that space with faith, with hope, that God loves us and that he will move on our behalf? See, that's what I think the, the resurrection is supposed to show us, that, that even in the, the face of incredible darkness and unquestionable defeat, that victory can still be found through Jesus Christ, if we would but believe I think that brings us to to one of the points of the resurrection, something that I think we need to keep in the front of our mind as we go through this Easter season. Faith isn't found by seeing an empty tomb. Faith is found by encountering the risen and living Savior. Faith isn't found by finding an empty tomb. I can take you to dozens of empty tombs. As a matter of fact, my cousin is right now in Egypt going through all of the tombs of the pharaohs. And you know what? When you go into these incredibly ornate, amazing tombs and you walk down into them, you know what you find? They're empty. But those people didn't walk out on their own. There were British scientists that came in and took them out. Right? There are archaeologists that removed the body. An empty tomb doesn't prove anything except for the body isn't there. The empty tomb was never meant to be the sign. Yeah, we can draw hope from it in hindsight, but, but no one's life was changed by seeing the empty tomb. Their lives were changed by experiencing and encountering the risen and living Christ in real time. And we see Jesus pursuing them and finding them in the midst of their great need and providing them with what they need. And I think Jesus does the same for us. Jesus came to heal heartaches and restore hope. That's what Christ came. And we see in the resurrection Christ doing that with Mary. In verse 11 it tells us that that Mary remains at the tomb crying. Now the word used here for crying is not like a gentle weeping, you know. Oh, Jesus died. Mary is full out ugly crying. She is weeping and wailing. Woo! This is nasty, ugly crying, snotty face, ridiculous crying. Why do I know that? It's the same word used when it talks about Lazarus' tomb and the professional wailers crying. The, literally, the text tells us that Mary is crying and weeping and wailing like a pro. And there as she looks into the tomb, seeing these angels, with her loud lamentation, she finds no comfort in the angels. But in that moment, as she's inconsolable, lost and overcome in sadness and sorrow at what life had brought her, Jesus came and stood with her. Now I want you to take note of that. Jesus came and stood with her. Because we're going to see that in every instance. That Christ comes and stands with us, calls to us and gives us what we need. He comes and he, he stands with Mary. Mary, though, can't see straight through the sorrow of her tears. It's another humorous note from John. Because Mary, it tells us, turns around and looks and she sees the gardener who John reveals is in fact Jesus. And Mary says, hey, do you know where his body is? I wish I wish with all my heart that Jesus would be like, yeah, Mary, I'm using it <laughs> right here, baby. I mean, is that not kind of funny that Mary is looking Jesus in the face, but she cannot see him through her sorrow? You ever been like that? Have you ever had one of those moments where the sorrow is so heavy, so, so pervasive, so all-consuming that you literally cannot see straight because of it? That you're crying so much that you're struggling. Your eyes are heavy and weighty. The the, the heaviness of the moment just obscures your vision. And so you can't literally see the person standing there, let alone find Jesus in the moment. But we're in good company. Here, Mary Magdalene literally has Jesus standing before her. And she cannot see him through her sorrow, through her tears, and through her hurt and heartache. Jesus is talking to her and she misses him. Now notice what Jesus does here. First, Actually, let's notice what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus does not demean Mary. Jesus doesn't disparage her. He doesn't doesn't dismiss her heartache. He doesn't laugh in her face and say, Mary, I'm standing right here, you fool. What's wrong with you? Empty tomb is a good thing. Funeral's canceled. He doesn't demean her. He compassionately stands with her. He he lets her share her sorrow. He hears her pain. And even as she overlooks the presence of the living Christ right before her, Jesus stays with her. Jesus calls her by name, seeking to heal what is broken. And, And I would argue the same is true for us. That in our hurt and heartache, that Christ comes to us, and that sometimes it's difficult for us to see Christ in the moment; it's difficult for us to discern His voice. But brothers and sisters, I assure you that in your heart, hurt and heartache, Christ is there. That He knows. As a matter of fact, it's often said that that we are never closer to Christ than in the midst of our suffering. Christ knows our sadness. Christ cares, and He continues to call us by name. What happens? Mary. Mary finally sees the truth. Jesus calls to her by name, and Mary finally sees the truth standing before her, and she makes the declaration. "Rabbi," says in here in my NIV, it means teacher. It's actually better translated "my master" or "my lord." Mary's sorrow gives way to overwhelming gladness and a need to share the good news. Note that a woman was given the distinct privilege of being the first to preach the gospel to others. Mary runs and preaches the truth of the resurrection to the disciples saying, I have seen the Lord. She didn't say, I've seen an empty tomb. They already know that. She'd already said that. No, 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 no. What makes the difference for Mary is I have seen the Lord. She believed, not because of the empty tomb, but because of an experience with the risen and living Jesus. Jesus came to heal heartaches and restore hope. But Jesus also came to overcome our fears. Tells us that same day, later that same day, Mary informed the disciples of her encounter with Jesus. But here are the disciples still hiding behind a locked door in fear terrified for their lives two saw the empty tomb ten heard Mary's testimony all struggled to believe it's often said these days that fear is a liar I like the phrase it's a nice sentiment but it's not always true sometimes fear is a good thing it's good to be afraid of a poisonous snake right you want to argue with me now about that later we can have a discussion but the the Bible says that I will put separation, enmity, hatred between your seed and her seed. If you love snakes, we need to have another discussion. It's the Bible. It's not me, right? There are certain things like it's right for me to be afraid of falling off a cliff. Right? That, that's that's going to end poorly. But there is a truth to fear being a liar. Fear does obscure the reality before us. While some fears are necessary to keep us alive... Our fears have a way of growing and taking on a life of their own, keeping us from the full truth. Fear tends to leach its way into the recesses of our heart and to suck away life, leaving behind poison and death. But here we see Christ as they as they hide in their fears, but and, and they're speculating. What are they afraid of? We might be next! They're going to assume that we stole the body. we got to hide. But here Christ breaks through the obstacles keeping him at bay in verse 19. The locked doors don't keep him away. Those obstacles that are keeping others out don't keep Christ away. He approaches them. He comes to them. He offers peace to those living in their self-imposed prison of fear. And once again it tells us that Christ came and stood among them. Now again, let's recognize what Jesus does and doesn't do. First, Jesus doesn't scold them for their cowardice. He he doesn't get on them for their lack of understanding. He'd been teaching them for three years, consistently, every day and every night, and they still don't get it. But Jesus doesn't scold them in this moment. He doesn't leave them to languish in their fear. Rather, he holds out his hands, and he offers them his heart. He gives them what they need to restore their courage. And how do they respond? The text tells us that they were overjoyed. We might say that Jesus returns to them the joy of their salvation. And what do they do? They immediately tell Thomas. They believed. Again, not because of an empty tomb, but because of an experience with the risen and living Lord. Jesus came. To help us overcome our fears. And Jesus came to destroy our doubts. It occurred to me this week as I was reading this text that being a well-known disciple of Jesus is not usually a good thing. Right? Think about it throughout the Bible. Judas, really well-known disciple of Jesus. Jesus, Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter, incredibly well-known disciple of Jesus. He denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but thrice. And then we have, this week, we have Thomas. The the twin, the double-minded and Thomas doubts Jesus. It could be a totally different sermon. I could name for you prominent celebrity superstar Christians today. And how many of them have we watched fall here recently? There, there's a significant occupational hazard to being a famous, well-known Christian. And, and we see that here with Thomas. It says, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, which consequently is incredibly nasty, why would that be something that you would want? But anyways, he says, I will not believe. Unless I encounter the risen Lord for myself, I refuse to believe. Thomas was absent. Hearing about the experience wasn't enough for him. He emphatically iterates his refusal to believe. If I don't touch him, I won't believe. Thomas's doubts denied him the ability to share in the joys of other disciples. And I would argue that we have those same experiences. When doubts creep in and we, we struggle, we languish in the dust of our disbelief. And we hear the truth, but we can't celebrate and receive the joy of it because the doubts are just too heavy. We often think that doubts are the absence of of faith. I don't agree with that. I think that doubt is actually faith fighting to find a way. Because if you have no doubts, then you've already settled on your position. It's when you have those doubts that you're open to belief. You're looking for what is the truth? What can I believe in? What can I trust in? Our doubts will either serve as motivators to find the truth we need where it will become the object of our attention and the thing that we believe in itself. And yet again, we see what? That Jesus came and stood among them. He met Thomas in his doubts. Jesus came close to Thomas, holding out his hands, not just offering to Thomas what he needed, but what Thomas had asked Jesus for. You know, I don't, I don't know that it's wrong asking for Jesus to reveal himself to us. Asking Christ to, to provide us with the experience of the risen Christ, an experience of his spirit, to, to make us aware of his spirit in our lives. The truth is he is standing there. And sometimes we do need for him to call out and to reach out to us in order that we can see him through our sorrow, through our fears, and through our doubts. Jesus offers Thomas that which he needed and what does it tell us? He believed, not because of an empty tomb, but because of an experience with the risen and living Christ. See, that's the truth of the gospel that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection provide what we need to believe. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection made a way. For us to believe. It gave us something to believe in. And brothers and sisters, what we believe in is not an empty tomb. It's not an empty stone slab in Jerusalem. It's a living, living, risen, and present Jesus who is here with us now, standing with us, offering his hands and his side to us, offering us his heart in order that we might find the hope we need. That we might be restored that we might believe and find life. We may not see or experience Jesus as they did, but we have the same signs that they did. Christ continues to hold out his hands and heart to us, and, and he has a way of meeting us right where we are. Jesus says in verse 29, Blessed are those who believe but have not seen. In his grace, God has provided us with the recorded testimony of his word as proof of who he is and what he has done. And in order to extend to us the promise of eternal life and restored hope to us in the face of difficulties, darkness, and of death. And you notice there's a pattern in each of these instances that Christ comes and stands amongst them in the midst of their sorrow, in the midst of their fear, in the midst of their doubt. He offers to them what they need. They believe and they run and they have to share it with somebody else. Now you might say, well, they could have lied in the pages of scripture. I don't know, maybe you've seen the videos, the memes that are online right now. I think they're hilarious because it shows how ludicrous that is. Because here we have men who are hiding, scared for their lives, that suddenly believe that it's true, so much so that they're no longer afraid of death, so much so that they stand beside those, before those authorities that threaten to kill them, willing to take beatings, willing to be sent to crosses. You don't die for something you don't truly believe in. I would say that their deaths are evidence of the res- resurrected and living Lord, because they know that their death is not the final answer. The same Spirit that lives in Christ lives within us, looking to bring resurrection life about in us both now and in the future. Christ is risen. He is alive and well. His Spirit stands amongst us, joining us in our struggles and allowing us to experience His power and His presence as we have need. Christ willingly passed through the deepest of darknesses to stand with us and call us into the light, and to save us from our own death and darkness. We must ask the question that John poses as a statement. He says, these are written that you may believe. And so the question this morning is this, do you believe? Do you believe the truth of the gospel, that Christ has risen from the dead, that the grave was empty, but more important than an empty grave, that we can experience the risen and living Lord, and that he will walk through us through the difficulties and darkness of life. I will tell you from my own experience, I have seen the Lord. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And may He reveal Himself to you today. May He help you to overcome your struggles. May He help you to pass through your sorrows. May He bring light in your darkness. May He destroy your fears and your doubts. And may we stand with faith and declare with the company of witnesses through the ages that I have seen the risen Lord. Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. I thank you for your great love with which you have loved us. God, I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us in clear and apparent ways. Lord, help us to know of your great love, to lean into it, to accept it, and to be encouraged by it. Lord, speak to us as we continue on this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.